It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. In the past two episodes, I've explored a myriad of links between science and politics. And the fact of the matter is that from individual scientists up to entire governments, politics shapes and moves research. But it would be disingenuous to suggest that this doesn't cause problems, especially when you throw in the media, special interest groups, hearsay and gossip. After all, Anything can get twisted in the rumour mill. So how should we talk about science? Science likes to claim it's value-free, but it's not. Actually, good politics is more important than good science. We screwed this up, right? We've just hung the readers out to dry. My name's Deborah Blum, and I'm the director of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. Science journalists act as one of the most direct links between researchers and the rest of society. And after reporting on science for over 30 years, Deborah is under no illusions that science and politics are separate. So I don't believe that science exists in a vacuum separate from the rest of humanity or human endeavors, which include political issues, right, or politics. And I, and I don't think that's ever been true. Science journalists think about the fuzzy line between scientific reporting and political reporting all the time. I've lost count of how many times my editor has asked me, what is the research angle on this story? And yet, despite all that thought, many readers think that we get it wrong. Here's Bruce Lewinstein, current academic and ex-journalist. So part of the reason for arguing that science and politics are distinct is so that you can define things you don't like as being politics and define things that you do like as science. So when someone makes a claim that a particular study has chosen the wrong standards of what should be counted as pollution, you can argue those were just political decisions. The decisions that I've made are pure science. 
Or when you see a study you like, you can say, yes, those are good standards. Yes, I know they're not the same ones that are used in the legislative system, but, but I think they're better standards, instead of acknowledging the political context that might have gone into setting those standards. The tricky thing is that sometimes when a line is blurry, there is no hard and fast rule to point to. It's always situational ethics, right? As if, you know, it's never just this is always right or always wrong. And that's not fair. But it is true that a lot of times we're going to make a decision in a case-by-case basis. And that can confuse matters. The difficult thing is, from the perspective of those outside the scientific community, and sometimes within... It could be easy to dismiss certain evidence as political when it conflicts with our core values. When people like what they're seeing, then they support it. And when they don't like what they're seeing, they don't support it. If it conflicts with other values, then science is only one set of values. Science likes to claim it's value-free, but it's not. It values knowledge over loyalty over personal commitment. It values knowledge over faith. And for many people, emotion and faith are key drivers. It is as human for us to be emotional as it is for us to be rational. Value systems are not constant. And so a scientific result presented by someone with one system can be interpreted very differently by someone with a different set of values. The same data, the same words, can be warped based on how they're perceived. And so when something like climate change, which means that in order to control it, there's going to have to be more government control and more limitations on what you can do in business or with your land or something like that, people say, you're attacking my independence. So that's just politics. And herein lies a danger. If people pick and choose what they support, what they believe based on value systems and not a reasoned analysis of the evidence, that opens up the door for a bit of a buzzword, politicization. More on that coming up. In the literature exist different definitions of politicization. Politicization is really, really interesting because when you tend to hear it, you tend to think about it as a sort of epithet. The idea of politicization depends on a misunderstanding about what science is. This is science and society researcher Dan Sarowitz. When I say you're politicizing the science, what I'm really saying is you're taking those sacrosanct pure facts and you're distorting them or you're misstating them to achieve your rhetorical goals or your political goals or your policy goals. The problem with that is that anytime science is involved in politics, it is politicized, inherently politicized, because you are drawing statements of facts into arguments about values and preferences about how the world should be. Deliberately distorting scientific evidence to support an agenda, politicization at its worst by those nasty politicians. But it can work both ways, and scientists do it too. We sometimes take political issues that are about values and make them seem as if they're 
issues of facts and who is asserting facts most correctly. So I'll use a simple example that right now is flaring up in the pages of the magazine that I edit, having to do with the issue of fish pain and animal welfare. Can fish feel pain? And it turns out that there are scientists who are very skeptical of the idea that fish can feel pain because of their understanding of what pain means as a neurological phenomenon. And there are scientists who feel that fish can clearly feel pain because of a different understanding of neurological phenomenon. And those scientists accuse one another of politicizing the science because of their concerns for different issues. Some of the scientists are more concerned with the importance of preserving freedom for anglers, which they see as not only an important social activity, but one that's environmentally important too. Others who are concerned with animal welfare feel like that animals shouldn't be subjected to any suffering. And yet, if you ask scientists about this, they'll all say, well, ultimately it's subjective and we can never know because we can never be in the brain of a fish. So, in case you missed that, and the rest of this series, it's messy, right? Science and politics, science and society, it's a mess. And that mess, depending on your values of course, can get an awful lot more damaging than a spat over sprats. What you're hearing here are people at the Indiana State House in the US, protesting against the wearing of masks. There have been similar protests across the world. In the UK, France, the list goes on. Now, there's a lot of things going on here. Questions of personal freedoms, medical exemptions, even accessibility. But right at the centre of the anti-masker movement, amongst the throng of contentiousness, is politicisation of science and evidence. And let's be clear at this point, scientists have a strong consensus on this. Masks do help prevent the spread of coronavirus. They can save lives. So why the backlash? Well, partly it's how politicians and other influential people portray this evidence. Trump and his supporters are corona deniers and are especially against masks, for example, or other preventive measures. This is Hannah Schmidt-Petrie, a researcher of politicisation. And he regularly attacks science and scientific advisors who try to convince him of the necessity and importance of preventive measures. So I think the most current example is his use of a quote of Mr. Fauci in an election commercial where he used his quote to create the impression that Mr. Fauci praises the efforts of Trump in the fight against corona. And he took the quote out of the context and Mr. Fauci stated that he never said this that way. So I think this is a very typical example of politicization because a politician picked a quote of a scientist to support his standpoints and his merits in, in the fight against the pandemic. And you don't have to outright misquote someone to politicize research. Sometimes simply the context in which evidence is viewed can cause radically different outcomes. Just look at the difference between Norway and Sweden, for example, right? They pursued radically different approaches based on consultation with their experts in the context of their political and social cultures. And those have led to different sets of actions and different outcomes. So yeah, if, if you really want to get a sense of why a kind of simplistic view of the experts must inform politics and policy is sort of not very helpful. COVID is a fabulous example of how politics, uncertainty, and science interact, and claims of expertise can be made 
on behalf of all sorts of different and contrary actions. In the practice of law, there's something known as Gibson's Law that states that every PhD, there is an equal and opposite PhD. According to Gibson's Law, if I want to make a point in court, or a political point for that matter, I can probably find some evidence to back up my position. And when science is politicised, that is what happens. But the thing is, it's not quite true, is it? Sure, there is a lot of disagreement in science, and if you go looking, you can likely find experts to disagree with others. But equal and opposite? More coming up. Deborah Blum, MIT Professor of Journalism, got her graduate degree back in 1982. And throughout her career, she has witnessed firsthand how scientific issues were talked about in the media. Take climate change, for example. At that time, science journalism really followed what I think of as, you know, it was the political model of reporting, right? There's always two sides. Dr. A says this, Dr. B says this, and you didn't really clue the reader into which side was the consensus side so much. It was just there's always two sides to a story, as in the U.S. politics, there's the Democrats and there's the Republicans, and unfortunately, never the twain seems to meet. This so-called political model of reporting exists to help counteract a journalist's bias, to present the argument and let the reader make up their mind. But for a story about climate change, that can cause problems. So a lot of science writers, in order to get, I'm air quoting this, the other side, you would interview scientists who were funded by the coal industry or the gas industry, but were there to assure you that climate change, you know, was an uncertainty and that, you know, there was not, all scientists didn't believe in it and there was much debate in them. A lot of stuff that turned out to be mostly uh, not reliable information. And it got to the point where Deborah realised that the whole industry of scientific journalism was making a mistake. At some point, we started having a discussion in the National Association of Science Writers, and I was president of that group right in the early aughts of the 21st century. And we started saying, well, we screwed this up, Right. We're giving people the inaccurate impression that there's this huge debate when, in fact, there's this growing consensus. And we've just hung the readers out to dry. And we've done that in part because we're covering this like politics. Something had to change, and it did, dramatically. You start to see science writers just write about climate change as if it's a fact. The same way that in the annals of public health, uh, you started seeing seatbelts mentioned in auto accident stories. Were they wearing a seatbelt? Right. And that, to me, represents a profound shift. For Deborah, this shift wasn't a political one. It was just good journalism. If we're good as journalists, we try to cover reality, and we owe our readers or listeners or viewers, we owe them reality. Right? We owe them an accurate reflection of what's going on. Not that science gets everything right every step of the way, and so you have to acknowledge that too. But the consensus is squarely that this is real, 
and we try to reflect accurately where the weight of the evidence is. To Deborah, communicating not just the facts but also the certainty, the level of consensus, that is vital if you want to talk about science objectively and accurately. Smart journalists do their homework. They figure out where the weight of the evidence is and and they report from that position of scientific strength. And that is actually contrary to what any Republican would tell you in the United States of America. That's actually apolitical reporting. But in a world where science is intertwined with politics, where everybody has an agenda, and where values frame every story, even attempts to be apolitical can be interpreted as something quite different. It's muddied by the swirls of politics that, you know, continually spiral through society. And so it interferes, I think, quite often. Politics interferes far too often with people's ability to actually see the reality. It seems that at every stage, the authority of science, evidence and expertise is only one step away from being tarnished, being used and abused to push agendas. And any attempt to solve this by crudely separating science and politics... Well, that is not much more helpful than it is realistic. So, what do we do? Can there be such a thing as an evidence-based society? And to be clear, when I say that, I don't mean a society based on science, just that when evidence could prevent real harm, like in a pandemic for instance, how do we use that evidence to help? That's coming up next. So it's through more democratization and greater openness that we're going to have more accountability for decision-making. This is Beth Simone Novak, a researcher who focuses on how to tackle societal problems, who has advised government herself. Politicians should, of course, make political decisions, but they should be upfront about what they're basing this on. I think that's what it comes down to. It's perfectly fine to say, I am making this decision based on values, But we need transparency in how we do that. We need to actually have institutions that are set up in a way that allow us to tap into an evidence base and then to have transparency in how the decision is made, whether it's with regard to or by ignoring the evidence base, that should be clear and accessible to people. Now, it's easy to dismiss this idea. Why would politicians show what they're basing their decisions on if it could be used against them? But in fact... In many places, this is happening. Take Taiwan, for example, where they've started a program called V-Taiwan, and they have made now over two dozen pieces of national legislation with the engagement of hundreds of thousands of citizens through a transparent process that works online. But to achieve this, there needs to be a shift in how we define expertise. That term expertise often gets very distorted to mean a specific kind of credentialed know-how of people with certain kinds of degrees, when expertise is really something that we have to understand very broadly to include people's experience, to include experiential wisdom, to include their situational awareness. We've typically thought about expertise and therefore about the role of science in in political decision-making much too narrowly and conflated that with a set of professions or a set of professional degrees. To put it bluntly, science, it's not all about you. Here is Dan Sarowitz again. 
at a certain point, you just have to realize that science is part of the mix. It's not this magic thing. Opening up political decision-making to more kinds of expertise can have a surprising impact. In governing, we're seeing lots of examples of when governments are doing it right, opening up how they work, listening and working with people who have expertise, not in the credentialed sense, but in the sense of lived experience. So you take the federal government, which back in 2010 started in the United States, started a platform called challenge.gov to ask people to help solve problems with and for the government. And you've had over a thousand of these prize back challenges that have been run in the United States, and they're popular now all over the world, to get unusual suspects, again, not the people who are typically called upon on the Sunday talk shows or who are the insiders, to actually help with solving problems. By valuing a broader range of expertise, you allow others to pick up elements of a problem that science and scientists just aren't properly equipped to tackle. Here's Dan again. In these complex situations, science is often asked to do a political job. And so the thing we need to do is be clearer about that and to recognize that actually good politics is more important than good science. So there's an irony here that I think needs to be kind of unraveled. And that unraveling is going to require more humility around what science can and can't do in the political realm, and more putting politicians' feet to the fire so that they actually have to say what it is that they're after, rather than saying, well, I'll just bring in my expert to say why my side is right. More putting politicians' feet to the fire, huh? If you had to choose one place in which nature has a clear political position, it is that we believe policy is stronger when it is supported by evidence. But if we care about achieving that goal, the evidence suggests that we have to think holistically. To look beyond just the pure output of research, we have to look at how research is funded, who is carrying it out, the values they hold, the systems they operate within, the balance of the evidence and the prevalence of power. To put it bluntly, the politics. Here's Bruce Lewinstein again. I think the world would be a better place if more people had access to the kind of reliable knowledge that science produces. In order for that to happen, people have to have a much better understanding of what science is. And I do not mean the specific content of science. I do not mean an idealized, hypothetico-deductive method of science. I mean the complex social reality of how science is produced. The fact that politics is deeply ingrained in how science gets funded, the fact that competition between research groups is not particularly different than competition between football clubs, that human emotion drives many scientists, that scientists choose problems based on particular concerns. If you talk to cancer researchers, Find out how many of them got into the field because someone in their family had cancer, right? They didn't choose this at random. They chose it because this is a field that matters to them. Science, society, and politics, they are inseparable. Now, this could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing, but either way, it's a true thing. And it's something which has real consequences. So at Nature, we're going to carry on talking about it. I hope you'll join us.
Stick to the Science was produced by me, Nick Howe, with editing from Noah Baker and Benjamin Thompson. It featured Deborah Blum, Bruce Lewinstein, Dan Sauritz, Hannah Schmidt-Petrie, Shabita Parasarafi, and Beth Simon Novak. If you enjoyed this series, tell us about it. There's a link to the survey in the show notes. Also, if these kinds of topics have caught your interest, then I suggest checking out the Received Wisdom podcast. It's hosted by Shabita, who you heard from throughout this series. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.